The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. So, Dave, my friend, a buddy of mine, uh, it, by the way, the cursing lamp is off now, okay? Uh, <laughs> that, that's what you think. A buddy of mine, uh, we were talking on email the other day about uh, flying ultralights, and he, was, he, he lives on a lake up in New Hampshire, and he was saying, you know, it's just too cold this time of year. And I said, well, I don't know if it's too cold or not. Do people fly ultralights in the wintertime? What's... Some some do. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. it takes a hearty soul, I would imagine. Although, in some respects, it, how much different would it be than getting out there on your snowmobile and going 80 miles an hour, You know, which some Bing, people do? Bingo. Uh, snowmobiling, uh, downhill skiing, where you you know, you know get very, very fast and can get uh, a, a lot of wind chill. Uh, not that much different than flying in, in an open cabin ultralight in the wintertime. Because, uh, you know, 55, 60 miles an hour is top speed on these things. Most people tool along at, you know, in the low 50s. And, yeah. uh, uh, and some ultralights actually give you an enclosed flying space like uh, Chuck Slesarchik's uh, CGS Hawk. Right. It's got a little enclosed cabin with zip-up doors, and, uh, you know, it's all fabric. It's not completely airtight, but it's a boatload more protected than uh, than some of the machines that uh, was my good luck to fly, uh, particularly early on. Uh, not bad machines, but, you know, a Quicksilver with no cabin. Uh, my One of my all-time favorites, the Drifter, uh, uh, an air cam, uh which has got a little bit of a pod around your lower part of your body, but your head and shoulders are still out and pretty well protected by the windscreen, but, you know, you're out there. Uh, the big thing is to dress dress for it and uh, study up on your uh, awareness of the symptoms of hypoxia. Right. I mean, not hypoxia, hypothermia. Hypothermia, okay. Hypothermia, yeah. Hypoxia, you should know anytime you're going flying. Yeah. Uh, and be really cogent that uh, extremities get colder and stay colder and are harder to warm up, uh, hands and feet. Uh, you know, good snowmobile suit, good boots, uh, socks lining. Uh, if you can get your hands on electric socks and electric gloves, sure, why not? A full face helmet with a, 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 a visor that covers your eyes and all that, that's a great help. Otherwise, goggles, because uh, your eyes can tear up pretty badly on really cold air, and wraparound sunglasses don't quite do the same kind of uh, temperature protection, in my opinion, but that's just me. Cool. But yeah, we get out and do it. Can you get like a ski kit to put on on an ultralight? I've seen I've seen uh, a floats, but can you get? You must be able to put skis on an ultralight. Huh? Oh yeah, yeah I saw absolutely. That at the uh, ski flying, the EAA ski flying. Yeah, I know they they yeah. held that just a couple weeks ago. Although apparently only one airplane managed to fly in. It was basically IFR all day. And uh, well, yeah, that's the problem with winter fly-ins. There's a there's a, there's a, there's video on the EAA.org site uh, that shows uh, you know reports from the from the ski flying and, and also shows the one guy who managed to make it in there and he was quite popular as you might imagine the whole hangar full of people they all just abandoned the chili wine and went to there's an airplane and they went running out onto the field <laughs> first 
question was, how did you get in here? Yeah. <laughs> he apparently found the one little window of opportunity and snuck on the in there. The answer is always, I saw it a mile away. That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. I, I saw it. I saw it. I was sight. right there. To- I was right there at the missed approach point, and there it was. I was waiting for the I'm waiting for the peanut galley to chime in. The way you do altar lights in the wintertime is Florida. But, yes, uh, you guys were being very well, strong. That I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, I, fl- I flew ultra lights in the wintertime in uh, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Virginia, West Virginia, uh, down the Chattanooga in other, area. In other words, in other words, the ground was covered with snow, and you got lost. Uh, no, actually, snow makes it really good. Uh, you know, the, the roads stick out really good after a snow because the traffic never seems to stop. Uh, so, some some instances, it can be easier to follow your tracks. Ridge lines get really distinct; it gets all white and contrasting. You can see the trees really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, my my usual drill was to, if I was going to make make a day of it, to find some place an hour hour and fifteen minutes ahead and fly upwind, mm-hmm. and yeah. hit that spot, and then fly crosswind for about an hour, downwind for an hour, crosswind for an hour. I could make a box. I could usually cover about oh sixty five seventy miles on a leg. And put in close to 300 in a day. But if you fly upwind an hour, cross an hour, down an hour, and cross an hour, you're not ending up back where you started. Uh, well, the last point has to be back where you started. Yeah, okay. All right. <laughs> I'm not saying it's a perfect square. <laughs> Welcome, folks, to episode number 68 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. Uh, we're recording this. Uh, this episode is going to be different in a number of different ways. But we're recording this episode on Monday afternoon, February 18th, 2008. We're Happy about, President's Day! Happy President's Indeed. Day! We're the, we're almost a almost a week off from our, our regularly appointed uh, recording time. But uh, I think we we scheduled and then rescheduled this recording session about four or five times last week and and uh, I certainly played my part in causing those delays and we all had little little things here and there but uh, um, but we decided to just jump in here on this on this Monday afternoon and, and gather the gang together so here we are let me say hi to the uh, the rest of my friends here in the virtual hangar uh, that was of course Dave Higdon telling us about flying ultralights in the cold Dave's an aviation photographer a senior editor for Kit Planes magazine and the US editor for London's World Aircraft Sales magazine and he's joining us from Wichita Kansas hi Dave lovely day to fly ultralights here right now is it nice out there it's nice up here too what's it like down there today uh, it's uh low 40s and uh, comfortable ceilings uh, partially obscured uh, a little little damp and uh, the winds you know down on the low teens so uh-huh. it's it's a, it's a relatively nice day for February well I'll, I got that beat here you go you ready this it's uh, it's it, it is overcast and rainy up here in Boston but I'm looking at my little outdoor thermometer it says 62 degrees Ooh, wow <laughs> I woke up this morning at like 7 o'clock. It was 57 degrees at 7 o'clock this morning. You saw that movie Jump. You've managed to transport some weather from Sarasota. That may be what it is. That may be what it is. Speaking, well, it of, is. Uh, speaking of Sarasota, well, not speaking of Sarasota, but you'll get the idea. Jeb Burnside is also out there in the hangar. <laughs> Jeb is an aviation journalist currently serving as editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine, and he's also a contributing contributing editor for Web Biz. And today you're talking – where are you today, Jeb? Uh, I am in Tifton. Uh, Tifton. I, now, uh, for those of you who didn't quite make that out, he's in Tifton. He's in Tifton, Georgia. He's on uh, what? You're on the borrowed free Wi-Fi at the uh, FBO there. Right? That's correct. I'm in the I'm in the FBO building, uh, specifically in a conference room they have. 
<laughs> well, we're going to truck, truck along here. We may have to change Jeb over to a cell phone at some point here. But uh, but anyways, also with us in the hangar this morning, this afternoon, is our friend Amy Laboda. Amy is a freelance aviation writer and the editor-in-chief of Aviation for Women magazine. And she's you're in Fort Myers this morning, right? That is correct. All right, Fort Myers. Uh Baseball report, Red Sox spring training just started the last week. Uh, how many times have you been out to the field? What? No, not <laughs> never at all? <laughs> how can but you be in Fort Myers and not go to, go to spring training? Come on. <laughs> I have somebody who has, has some pretty decent season tickets for uh, spring training. So if I really want to go, but you know, I think it's going to rain today. I don't know that they're going to get their practice in. Well, it hasn't officially started yet. We just have pitchers and catchers here. And uh, so we're just kind of, we'll, we'll take anything we can get at this stage of the game. We, I think we were, we're singing the praises of Jeb's free Wi-Fi a little bit too soon because he, his, yeah. his Skype fell apart, and, uh, and so we've now got him on the cell phone. So we're going to continue along here. So, Amy, so all right, uh, uh, that's enough baseball talk here. So it is, although it's 60 degrees up here today, uh, it is a, 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 the, uh, the Alton Bay Ice Airport is up and running up in uh, Winnipesaukee, uh, Lake Winnipesaukee, New Hampshire, and I've heard oh, some reports. Yeah. Um, they had their little fly-in, I think, over this past weekend, and uh, I haven't actually seen any video from it. We saw some cool video last winter, but uh, I'm hoping, I have to go away for about a week, I'm going to be away for next weekend, but hopefully the following weekend, it'll still be operating, and I'm hoping to get on up there to, to get it to get a first-person report on the uh, the Alton Bay Ice Airport. Which is, How do they know when to, like, close the ice runway? I would imagine that people are, well, well, you know, there's a lot of ice fishing going on all the time, so they probably have plenty of of fishermen reports. I don't know, what's the joke? Pyreps, fireps, fisher, I don't know. Fireps. They, but they can probably have plenty of opportunities to measure the thickness of the ice, and I would imagine they have some standard that they use for how thick it needs to be, and, uh, you know... The colloquial is fish stories, but that's yeah. another thing. But uh, you know, there's a the, it's the the FBO from Rochester, New Hampshire, from Skyhaven are the folks who actually drive on up there and maintain the uh, the runway. They plow it, and apparently this year there's actually even a taxiway, which I think is kind of in the wow. past. In the past, there's just been the runway, and then you back taxi on the runway. But uh, apparently, there's actually a taxiway this year, and uh, um, I think I think they've taken more steps to get clearance between the runway and the the ice fishing. Uh, operations, but uh, but they're up and running again this year, and uh, I'm hoping to go up there. Maybe I'll get some pictures and and uh, be able to tell some first person stories. And uh, I'm not going to fly in because it's just completely outside of my my uh, you know comfort zone. Oh man, to land on the ice like that. I, you saw those pictures. I'm not doing that. At least not until I've had some I don't know something. But uh, <laughs> I was thinking training. I was thinking training, but yeah, maybe that too. I don't know. So. No, we'd never endorse that. Yeah. <laughs> Afterward, absolutely. Yeah. So, Amy, you put this one. Amy, you put this one on the list. Apparently, someone's figured out a way to fly uh, airplanes on nuclear power. No, that's not exactly not the story. But, but tell not us the story. Quite. What's going on? Uh, basically, and this comes this comes out of the New York Times. God bless. Um, how about harvesting fuel from air? Better yet, gets better and better. How in the world do you do that? Uh, well, basically what they are saying, and this is Lawrence Livermore Lab, so it's not, you know, some some bozo in a, you know, basement, um, is that they could uh, possibly get the CO2 out of the air and process it so that it becomes uh, gasoline again. 
And the way they propose to do that, the energy they propose to use um, for the process is nuclear power. That's where the, this comes back around again. Really, so they, well, I mean, the point is they need a lot of electricity, right? They need a they lot need, of electricity. They need electricity. Yeah. Uh, now, they didn't even say a lot of electricity, but they do need elec- electricity. And their concept is to enhance the U.S. energy and material security by reducing dependence on imported oil. Now, they are saying that they can make gasoline that would cost retail about $4.60 a gallon at the pump. Mm-hmm. With this process, and when they're and they don't need to use food crops to do it, yeah. And the lab, you know, is a legitimate lab. They don't, you know, they don't make this stuff up. Yeah, no. Um. So I don't know about you, but I think what are they paying San Francisco now for? For ten a gallon? Do they probably? I wouldn't be surprised. It's been a while since I bought gas out there, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Kind of sounds like terraforming out of uh, some science fiction movie. Well, that's what yeah. I was going to say. They're also yeah. The same announcement. They said they know how to make gold out of lead, right? And <laughs> yeah. Well, but really, yeah, you know, and the, I, the key I component. Stand, oh, I'm sorry. Go I ahead. I stand corrected. It's Los Alamos National Laboratory. Ah, uh, okay. All right. Well, okay. so. The, the, you know, the key to this being carbon neutral is that they not create a lot of carbon to generate the electricity to drive the process. Well, yes. it's isn't it carbon neutral because they're actually taking the carbon out of the air oh. and putting it back in the air? So It's, it's only carbon neutral if you use a non-carbon producing fuel source for the electricity that you have to generate to oh, run the process. What we're doing is what, generating plutonium or something. So um, Right. Yeah, right. well, I didn't say it was a perfect concept. No, I'm, 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 I'm not. Uh, yeah, I, I understand the carbon neutral part of it, and uh, you know, it's it, it'd be great if we could say that they could produce enough power with uh, uh, solar or wind to drive this process. That would also be carbon neutral, and not complicate it with the whole issue about you know nuclear waste and what you do with it. Uh, but even this. To me, uh, states that you need a whole lot of power to produce a whole lot of this fuel, which doesn't, you know, it's not surprising. It takes a whole lot of power to produce the gasoline and, and diesel fuel and jet A that we uh, we burn today. Well, uh, it takes it takes a whole lot of power just to distill water, and we're yeah. getting into that business That's, too. Yeah. yeah. No, I think it sounds promising. I, I've always said that, that we may not have great, the greatest ways to find electricity now, but, but we'll find better and better ways to get electricity. The key is to get off of the whole petroleum thing. Is that, you know, well, you know, this whole, this whole drive, to, there's been a, a, a lot of interest in hydrogen-fueled fuel cells to generate electricity to drive vehicles. And one of the arguments against it, or one of the yeah buts, uh, has always been, well, you need a lot of electricity to produce the hydrogen to fuel the the, the right. vehicle, and, and and ergo, in the end, it's not you know really that carbon neutral. But Honda has had prototype fueling stations uh, for small communities for uh, a number of years that use rooftop solar cells to continuously generate. Uh, the reaction to separate hydrogen and oxygen from water and capture it on the site, put it under pressure and bottle it so that it can be fueled in pumps up at ground level. It's all done underground with the solar cells on the roof. And, you know, it seems like we're moving in the right direction with a lot of these ideas, but uh, what is a, a sense it's a long way from shaking out. 
gasoline from air. That's, I can get into that. That's okay. I love yeah, it. You got to start somewhere. Pa- I, and 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 I think that you're absolutely right, Dave. The more that people come up with these ideas, and the more that we publicize that, that this thinking exists, um, the more people are convinced that that we should change. You can't convince them to change unless you show them that we've already got these great, great ideas out there and that they're working. Well, and t- you know, you, you think about it long term, the economic development engine that uh, a movement to greener power sources and, and research and development and production of alternative fuels, carbon neutral processes and all that, uh, you know, you could be looking at a, a, a huge uh, uh, jobs provider in the coming years that could finally start to offset some of what we've lost in manufacturing in this country. Absolutely. It, every little bit helps. I don't think there's ever going to be one single technology, just like there aren't, you know, one single energy. There isn't one single energy technology now. But uh, in the future, there's going to be a lot of little ones. And, right. Yeah. And we have to good. remember. We have to remember that we've only been on this petroleum binge for about 110, 120 years, maximum. Maybe not even that long. Yeah, not even that long, I think. But yeah, no, no, really. And we only got about 10 or 20 more. Then we're done. Then we got to move on. So <laughs> That's one way to look at it. <laughs> so Jeb's back on Skype. We'll see how long it lasts. Uh, Jeb, it's I think this dinner. is... It's fun. It's you, you, I think this was the story you posted about uh, FAA funding has been extended. Uh, what's this? What's going on there? Yeah, let me find that um, that news item. Yeah, here we go. Actually, this is from uh, uh, Air Transport World. Um, the House, uh, uh, I guess, last week uh, passed a bill um, to extend uh, FAA funding through June 30, um, setting the stage here. About this time last year, we were talking about how the uh, existing, then existing uh, FAA authorization bill uh, legislation would expire on September 30. That did indeed occur. Uh, How uh, is the FAA still running, you might ask? Well, the Congress has passed a series of continuing resolutions. which is the the colloquial name for the for what they're doing? Basically, they are just continuing FAA and other agencies of the federal government, um, continuing to fund them without um, specific legislation directed at each individual agency. Um, what the House did last week was, uh, and and we're still really no closer to passing. A, uh, a standalone, dedicated FAA bill than we were, say, six months ago. Uh, but what the House did was was pass a specific bill um, extending FAA funding uh, through June 30. Uh, the Senate has to do the same thing. Uh, one of the the great things about doing it this way, as opposed to through the continuing resolution process, is that um, airport improvement f- funding, uh, which is now suspended could go forward Mm, and um, uh, monies that are in the airport and airway trust fund could be used uh, under the AIP uh, whereas now they cannot be just under uh, just uh, because of the continuing resolution process so um, the uh, uh, apparently uh, the existing uh, uh, monies expire on February 29 uh, the end of the month and uh, it's important that uh, uh, we get some of this airport money flowing out there. Here we are, what five months uh, into the into the current fiscal year, and uh, uh, 
my understanding would be that there has been no airport funding flow. So that's that's not a good thing. Hmm. So does the Senate need to get on board with this quick fix? The or? Senate does need to get on board with this. Um, um, I, I wouldn't give you a fig, as the saying goes, for the chances of that happening uh, without toying around with uh, uh, user fees and, and this kind of thing. But uh, at least the House is trying to do the right thing here and get this get this process moving. Hopefully the Senate will see the light and, and uh, uh, match up with this June 30 extension. That way we can get some money flowing. Yeah. Write your senators. Yeah. Right, your senators. Let's see now. Uh, what's going on with Adam Aircraft? Not a whole lot, unfortunately. Yeah, um, it's quiet out there now. It's very quiet. Yeah, I am just. I have know they, they, of, so they have people, shut down or not? Yeah, yeah, they have shut down pending, uh, you know, a new uh, injection of cash or or pending. Uh, uh, I guess it's Chapter Seven, Chapter Nine bankruptcy. Uh, um, they they're funding. You know, they needed X number of dollars to, to continue certification of the A seven hundred. They didn't get it um, by the by a deadline, and uh, they've had to cease operations. And it's it's really kind of unfortunate. Uh, I know you know several people involved with that effort, and uh, um, they're all good people. It was a it was a solid effort. Uh, it was just not funded well. So. Um, it's 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 really sad. Uh, it's a good airplane. Now, w- was that their only aircraft, or did they have others? Oh, they, been- they certified they the A five hundred. Right. Yeah, exactly. Five hundred is out there. For, for people um, unfamiliar, can you describe these aircraft to us generally? I mean, what what's, what sort of aircraft are they? The A five hundred centerline twin, a centerline thrust twin, push me pull you like the uh, right. Cessna Skymaster. Uh, but it's uh, about six seats. It's all composite. Has these uh, long twin uh, uh, tail booms that uh, extend back from uh, the uh, airframe and a horizontal tail that spans between them. Uh, airplane certified. It's pressurized. Uh, and I don't know. There's seven, eight, nine, uh, maybe a dozen of them already delivered and flying in their customers' hands. The A700 was basically a uh, redesign around the fuselage and wing that uh, chucked the piston engines and mounted two uh, Williams uh, FJ33s on the uh, aft fuselage and made it a very light jet. Mm-hmm. Also all composite, pressurized. Uh, and it, it had been coming along, but neither of their programs came along exactly well, not even anywhere near schedule or, right. or potential, and cost them a lot of money in the long run. Uh, the A500 got, uh, what do they call it, uh, preliminary certification? or pro- Pro- Provisional. Provisional, thank you. Uh, provisional certification uh, and was a long time limited in altitude and conditions uh, that pretty well negated the turbocharged engines and the pressurization but still, they persevered and finally got the airplane approved. And the airplanes that are out there now, uh, I understand, are pretty decent performers. Uh, the A700, uh, good potential, really big cabin for uh, the VLJ category. But you know, down in that weight segment and price segment, and I think it was going for about two and a quarter million mm-hmm. uh, when the doors closed. Well, but, correct uh, me if I was wrong, but didn't they say they had almost a billion dollars in um, confirmed orders for that airplane? Yes. There's yeah. a bunch of orders uh, for both airplanes, um, and it was it's my understanding, and anybody st- step in, that they, they came up $100 million short. 
uh, they needed a hundred million to make to make the nut, or the, they had set a goal, or someone had set a goal of a hundred million dollars. Actually, by, it was, a, uh, it was a two-phase fundraising. Okay. Uh, the they needed to come up with about thirty million plus from sources outside this investment bank that they were working with. If they could come up with $30 million plus uh, that showed confidence from independent investors, uh, then this uh, investment bank was going to kick in a little over $100 million additional. And that was supposed to see the uh, full ramp up of the A500 production and the uh, transition to the A700, which is well along in its in, in its mm-hmm. certification program, uh, through the final FAA certification flights and uh, spooling up the production line and starting to kick out airplanes by the end of this year. Now, now that's really doubtful. Yeah. Now I'm curious, and not to pick on Adam Aircraft, but I'm just curious how these things work in general. The folks who ordered these these uh, upcoming aircraft. Usually they make a deposit of some sort, right? Mm-hmm. Does that deposit go into escrow and they'll go back now, or is that lost money? How does that work? It, it depends on how the company uh, uh, set it up. It depends on how the customer set it up. Uh, earlier on, um, was, typically early on in the development of any new airplane, um, the monies are put into escrow uh, as a as a show of faith on both parties' part. Um, I, I would. I don't know. In this instance, it kind of depends on which serial number you had and when you got into the queue. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, we wish all those employees good luck. And uh, yes, indeed. And uh, we're thinking good thoughts. Maybe a white knight will come along, but it doesn't sound real promising. I guess I don't know. Well, there, there's a tremendous value in the assets that they've assembled. Uh, yes, there production is. tooling, prototypes, uh, a uh, type certificate, and a production certificate in one case. Uh, it's a you know I I have a hard time conceiving that something won't come along to rescue this even if it has to be through bankruptcy yeah, yeah. you know <laughs> that uh, that they'll they'll file to liquidate the company and the uh, creditors will go wait a minute let us find a white knight and they'll agree on a white knight who will come in and get it for a fraction of what it's worth. And a lot of people will lose a lot of money, but the program will come back and hopefully long-term help those folks make back uh, some or all of what they lost. Because the, the, the two airplanes are fundamentally sound. Yeah. I, I was having a similar conversation last week um, with a, another industry professional, and and we were both kind of, a, of agreement that uh, Hawker Beechcraft uh, should step in. Um, they, their parent company has the bucks to, to, to take on something like this. Um, and secondly, uh, Hawker Beechcraft doesn't have a comparable product. It'd be very complementary to their existing product line. And they do have a lot of experience now in composites with the Premier right. and the uh, Hawker 4000. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe, it'll be interesting. Maybe we should bust open the UCAP tip jar and see if we can put together a down payment. and. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, we offer a bailout. I, yeah. I, I love the idea. There you go. There you go. Well, th- how are things going in the industry in general? Gamma came out with their uh, their uh, review for the year. Gangbusters. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't read any of it, but yeah, how is it? Depends on if you're a piston driver or uh-huh. a turbine driver. What's the difference as far as the Gamma report's concerned? About 20%. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Give us a little summary. <laughs> Give us a little summary. Those of you who have read it through or at least looked it through it, what's the report say this year? Well, the uh, industry set a record 
I mean, a, a big jump from its past record in total billings. And I'm trying to get this puppy to, to come up here. Uh, $21.9 billion in 07 versus $18.8 billion in 06. Do the math. Uh, more than uh, uh, more than three billion dollars uh, total billing. That's gross. That's not uh, net profit. Um, uh, over oh six to oh seven. So uh, the the uh, the gamma summary says a sixteen point five percent change to the positive. Uh, that's for uh, well, that's that's all billings. That's not uh, just pistons or just business jets. That's uh, total shipments, total billings. The only, uh, as as Amy alluded, the only uh, down number uh, was pistons. Piston aircraft um, um, saw a a total drop of two point nine percent in number of airframes shipped from two hundred. I'm sorry, from two thousand seven hundred fifty five in oh six to 2,675 in 07. Yeah, 80 airplanes. Yeah, 80 airplanes. Um, yeah, that's that's down. Um, that's that's almost in the uh, the margin of error, uh, if you're a political pol- pollster. Uh, turbo, <laughs> you know, tur- turboprops are, are also, we're also up uh, 412 to 459. Oh uh, six to oh seven, eleven point four percent change, but the the big the whopping big number. Um, look, jet side eight hundred eighty six in oh six versus eleven hundred thirty eight in oh seven, uh, twenty eight point four percent increase. And, and the first time, first time that the industry yeah. has broken one thousand jet deliveries, uh-huh. and they didn't just bust that. Ceiling, they, they obliterated shat, going they above shat. 1100. Yeah. Yeah. So what does that tell you? Does that tell you that people would rather buy a buy a jet than a light uh, piston? Well, well no. Just there's a category of there's a category of uh, of folks out there with the wherewithal and the finances to uh, to uh, invest in personal transportation, and a lot of these business jets are are you're being flown by professional crew for their owners. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the vast majority of them, actually. But I mean, you know, even the ones that are owned by individuals or uh, non-celebrity VIPs that uh, have the money, they might be flying under a business heading. But they're somebody's personal airplane. They're flown by a professional crew. They're not flown by owner pilots to a large extent. Well, uh, one, one, two things you need to keep in mind too. So yes, there are a lot of these are. are uh, are owned outright by an individual or a, or a small business or something like that, strictly for that entity's tr- transportation. But a lot of others um, are are um, um, uh, part time. For example, they might be flying charter one day. They might be flying uh, part ninety one the next day for the owner. Um, there's also a lot uh, still going into the fractional fleet. There's right. a lot of a lot of airframes going into the pure charter uh, fleet, but Keep in mind also that this is these are worldwide numbers from Gamma member companies. So, um, not all of these aircraft went into service here in the U.S. Uh, many, many of them, and some of these numbers might be um, uh, in the Gamma statistics. Many, many of them went overseas to Asia, to to the subcontinent, to Europe. And, well, I think uh, we're, we're finally in a time where international deliveries are the far superior percentage. Right. To domestic deliveries, particularly where you know business turbine aircraft are concerned, right. uh, you know, and, and this isn't this isn't a an aberration this year. These numbers have been headed up steadily the last three or 
four years and the backlogs that all the business turbine manufacturers are holding uh you know point away toward even bigger numbers and in you know for an additional two three four years yeah. Well, what you're saying is, thank God that uh, the aviation and aerospace industry exists inside of the United States, because at least we can be showing as an export product, which Absolutely. there aren't that many of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, so and a big okay, ticket item. So the gamma numbers are involved deliveries worldwide. Is it manufacturers worldwide or just U.S. manufacturers? It's no, gamma it's member companies, members. right? Okay, um, which includes some foreign makers. It, uh, it includes Dassault, for example. Uh, looking here at the at the larger report, we were just reading from the summary. Um, uh, first, first company on the list, of course, is Adam. Then we go into uh, Airbus, um, and we're talking about Airbus. We're talking about their uh, their corporate jet configured uh, transport category aircraft. Boeing Business Jets is also a member uh, company of of. Uh, of Gamma. Then we get into Cessna, Cirrus, Diamond. I mentioned um, um, Dassault. There's Gulfstream, Hawker Beechcraft, Mall, Mooney, Piper, Pilatus, Piaggio. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we keep on going. Um, <clears throat> so when they give us year to year numbers, presumably they, they adjust these for like new members that, you know. Oh, yeah. Just arrived. I mean, it's not like. Well, no, they don't. The numbers are up because numbers. somebody just necessarily. Joined. They, they don't necessarily adjust them now. Oh, um, really? So, so the uh, increase could be because somebody just, just joined or the decrease in pistons because somebody went away. Well, and here's one more thing. Uh, the uh, light sport manufacturers may or may not be wrapped into That's right. Oh, yeah. They're not, they are, they are not in these numbers. They are not. There. That's, that's, a, that's a DJ thing. Um, the only... Uh, um, well, I, Define that. That's Dan Johnson. Yeah, thank you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, I'm looking through here. I don't see any LSA manufacturers listed as well, a Gamma member company, with one exception. Sort of Cirrus and, and Cessna. Well, sort of Cirrus and Cessna, who, who haven't marketed or sold any of their LSA airplanes yet. So Yeah, they haven't delivered. Uh, they haven't delivered. We'll have to ask Dan about that. That that is a good point because that could well explain the decrease in piston sales because people are, you know, either waiting or have transferred their loyalty over to an LSA. Right, and I think uh, last time we had Dan on, we were talking in round numbers about how many LSAs have been sold in the U.S. We were definitely looking at four figures, and that's really? over the last couple oh, of it years. It was over two thousand. It was over yeah, two thousand. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that was, I guess, I want to say over the last couple of years, I think a better way to put it would be since the LSA reg became final. So that would be since April yeah. 2005 when yeah. the first LSA got its SLSA uh, right. consensus. So standards. so almost three years, and I think we're as, as – I, I didn't want to err on the high side, but I think Dave is actually uh, more correct uh, – uh, uh, over 2,000 LSA, so you fold that into the piston singles, and uh, things look a lot brighter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool, cool. Well, and uh, there, there were there were some slowdowns by some of the piston manufacturers in the last year, but uh, most of them, in in talking about their 2008 plans, seem to be indicating that uh, that their numbers are going back up this coming year. Mm-hmm. So I would expect to, to still exclusive of LSAs from this particular comparison. I'd expect to see piston deliveries. Uh, 
up four or five percent uh, in in the coming year. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I would too. Speaking, well, I don't know if this is this. I was trying to come up with a clever segue, but I'm realizing there is no clever segue. Amy, you put on the list. You said 51% rule the future of dot dot dot, and then you didn't give us a link to figure out what you're talking about. Well, what were you, I didn't, what I didn't were you, have a link. Oh, okay. What were you talking about? Are <laughs> they going to change the rule? Is 51% no longer going to be 51%? So 51%, I presume, you're referring to the fact that a, that a home-built aircraft needs to be, quote-unquote, 51% built by, the, by the, the owner, the amateur, right? Well, actually, it's how certain kits are certified right. as home-built kits and sent out as kits. And what the FAA has done is put a moratorium on certifying any more kits as 51%. Oh, for Pete's sake. And they're not going to do it until they define what 51% is because they're very distressed over aircraft that are supposedly built by amateurs for education being certified that turn out to have been built by professional builders for sale. That's really interesting. You would expect EAA to be all over this. Well, they have been actually. This this uh, move by the FAA didn't come in the in a vacuum. Uh, no. The there's been a uh, a committee uh, comprised of folks from uh, EAA and the FAA and interested manufacturers uh, looking at this and working on this for about two years now. They started at Oshkosh, I believe it was 2006. Yeah. And uh, this decision to uh, uh, put a moratorium on further uh, approvals of the kit as 51% eligible uh, came about from their most recent meeting where the FAA has outlined to EAA and the committee, uh, well, they've actually kind of come to a consensus on this, on some definitions, some changes in the advisory circular that, that, that dictates uh, this uh, so they can redefine things to basically it, it, uh, stave off further of what Amy was talking about, these professional builder shops where the uh, kid owner shows up and takes pictures of, uh, uh, of the airplane going together and doesn't really do as much of the work as, 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 uh, as the FAA would like to see. Yeah. There's a story. I'm looking at a story from EAA.org uh, that uh, – it's current, as of right now, it's a headline from their front page, EAA, FAA, Discuss Experimental Amateur Built Rules. And uh, they make reference to January's EAA, FAA, Recreational Aviation Summit, which, once I'm quoting here, once again provided EAA with an opportunity to inform the FAA of the need to protect the FAR 21, uh, 191G experimental aircraft experimental amateur-built aircraft from limitations on size, type of power plant, or complexity. And there's a lot of information here. So, uh, wow. Yeah, and, and really, they, they are concerned about uh, a black market airplane market yeah. that exists. It yeah. really does exist. So, um, and, and having people put in for repairman certificates who really don't know the airplane and yep. then are being certified to work on it and do condition checks on it. There's a lot of, there's, it's a serious conundrum. And how to address that without limiting the people who truly are building an airplane? 
Are we aware of any uh, or a series of accidents or, or problems involving such activity? I, uh, yeah. re- well, the reason I ask, I mean, it's, it's one thing to see a, a violation of the spirit of the, of the rules. Uh, it's, it would be another thing if airplanes were falling out of the sky with regularity uh, because of that violation. And I'm just yeah, I'm, I asked the question rhetorically. I'm I'm just kind of, you know just trying to get a handle on what the scope of the problem. I think that I think that there's not a safety issue yet. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if there will be a safety issue. It yeah. really depends on the people who didn't want to build their airplane, not wanting to maintain it as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, but the the not the black market airplane market is an issue that the FAA wants to address um, because changes can be made when you're hand building an airplane and it may or may not be as airworthy as the factory kit that was certified mm-hmm. make sense yeah it, it does um, you know, someone and I'm not trying to defend you know either side of that coin someone uh, on the other hand would say yeah but someone who has done this before and and it is a professional uh, who was assembling this airplane would do a better job yes I, I don't argue that point either uh, right. would do a better job than the guy who lets it sit and collect dust yeah mm-hmm. um, I think personally this is a very important issue for kit manufacturers because they know that percentage of their airplanes are being sold to many factories right now. They already know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to, I'm I'm skimming this uh, article on the EAA uh, website and trying to find some sort of paragraph uh, that sums it up, but it's a very complicated issue. I'm not going to try and sum it up, but we'll put a a link to it in the show notes, and uh, um, I think this may get be something that might get started a conversation in the forums too. If people oh, absolutely. There. And yeah. can I add one more thing? Is sure. that I don't I don't put into the category of professional aircraft factories any places like Ron Alexander or um, you know there's a series of different air um, places around the country that invite builders in and that really do let the builder build the right. airplane. Right. Um, and they do a wonderful job, and they do an incredible service, and they are helping people get their airplanes built that otherwise probably wouldn't finish. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a real fine line between that and a place uh, outside of the United States where people are shipping their kits, going down and changing T-shirts three times to have <laughs> pictures standing next to their kit looking like they're working on it, and then their airplane comes back done. Mm. Yeah. yeah, we're not talking about builders assistance programs. Uh, you know, the legitimate ones that are run by several of the kit companies. We're not talking about uh, the uh, workshops where you can, uh, you know, go away for a few days, spend a few hundred bucks, and come back with a functional structural component like uh, a rudder or a vertical stab that you built in that builder's workshop, learning how to work in the materials. Uh, you know, those are legitimate, long-standing, traditional ways to learn to build an airplane. Uh, buying a kit and then contracting with a guy to pull all the rivets and, uh, and, and do, you know, all the wires and all that work while you get your picture taken next to it. Uh, that's just because you happen to be well off enough to write a check, and it's not right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, another subject that came up in the forums, this is, uh, I'll read a little snippet here. This is from Pilot Bill from Texas. Pilot Bill writes, 
I read a post on the AOPA forums that referenced Amy Loboda ditching a Cessna in the Gulf of Mexico in 2001. He says, I'd like to hear more about that. Now, I can imagine that, uh, first of all, assuming there's some truth to this, I can imagine that, that this is a very sensitive subject and, and reliving it is kind of a mixed thing. But, Amy, is there anything you can tell us or share with us about uh- I this think thing? I've come around from the post-traumatic stress syndrome, if that's what you're asking. <laughs> so this well, this did happen, huh? This did well, happen. Do they actually it? call that post-traumatic splash syndrome? Yeah, 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 yeah. You can. All right, Dave. I'm coming years. out there for you. I'm coming after you. <laughs> yeah, that's for that. right. He's halfway there, Dave. Be careful. That's right. Only because I had not yet gotten my seaplane rating at that point. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that would have made it okay, right? That would have made it okay. What happened? Well, the seaplane yeah. rating is good for takeoffs. The landings the are okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, actually, it was one of the better landings I've ever made, and uh, courtesy of the lovely 210 that I was flying that day. Um, because uh, with the wheels up, it's not that hard to make a really pretty be- belly landing. Uh-huh. Um, you know, especially on a calm wind morning in a flat sea, and you can pretty much land whichever direction you want to land in. Now, I wanted to land on the airport, but I wasn't. There was no way that was going <laughs> to happen. Um, but about a mile and a half offshore, somewhere apparently um, fairly close to a, a dredging barge. Um, I was able to touch down very nicely on the water, right on the sweet spot of the airplane, um, because nobody complained about the landing. Um, They just got wet. (laughs) You're very cavalier about this. Well, I can afford to be a little cavalier about it at this point. You know, it was a failure of the crankshaft on an engine that had 1,500 hours and was 12 years old. Um, it was not the kind of crankshaft that typically failed on that engine. Um, so you can put me down as one of the, what, 2% of engine, uh, c- catastrophic engine failures that just happen. Mm-hmm. And the NTSB even took that crankshaft and looked at it, and the best they could say was fatigue. Uh-huh. They really didn't give a good explanation um, to anybody's satisfaction of what they thought happened. Uh, the, the consensus from the NTSB was that there was one of the cylinders that wasn't torqued 100% properly. Um, I mean, and we're not talking off by much, which is yeah. why I have a hard time buying it, um, from a top overhaul eight years before. Yeah, Eight years and, and how many hours? Yeah, a lot of hours. That, that would, um, would normally affect a crankshaft, just an mm-hmm. under-torque cylinder. Yeah, right. So, and the, go ahead. Go ahead, and then I'll I'll get to the ditching. I'm getting there. Okay. <laughs> so so again, causes um, effect is it sounds like a cherry bomb going off in your engine. Uh huh. Nobody wants to hear that sound yeah. in a single-engine airplane when climbing out over water. And why was I climbing out over water? Well, you don't climb out over land in Key West. Okay, yep. Uh, the airport wants you to go away. Yeah. <laughs> and there are so many directions you can go in, but land ain't one of them. And the reason why is because you've got the Naval Air Station to to one direction. So even if you were trying to stay over the chain of islands, you really couldn't because you've got to go around their airspace. I was IFR headed to Grand Cayman. And so, therefore, I was right out over the water, 
and climbing steadily, heavily loaded, five people on board. Headed to the Tadpoe intersection. That is correct, Tadpoe. And in fact, it was in the turn to Tadpoe. I'd just been cleared for the turn to Tadpoe that the engine went off on me and uh, gave me no indications prior to that moment that it was going to go. Now, what was the weather? Was the weather IFR? No, no, the weather was not IFR, but when you're going international like that, you're on on IFR. I understand. I just like wanted that. to kind of paint the picture here. So, yes. Uh, okay, go ahead. It was, it was a lovely morning, and I stayed in the turn, pushed the nose over, because I am a glider pilot, and that's what you do, and uh, put my finger back on the button and said Mayday to the same controller I just spoke to 10 seconds before. Yeah. And uh, I looked down and saw... Zero RPM, and I looked up and saw a spinning prop, and that pretty much answered the question for me. <laughs> okay. So then what happened? <laughs> it's a non-feathering prop, too. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's not a whole lot you can do, although I did pull the pitch. In fact, I pulled it so hard that I pulled it completely. It was out like 14 inches. A little extra right arm strength there, girl. Yeah, I saw the airplane about a week later, and I was like, wow, that's interesting. And the the FAA investigator asked me, why is the seat so far forward? And I looked at him, and I said, that's where I fly with it. (laughs) Uh uh The seat track didn't fail. (laughs) In fact, it's exactly where I left it. (laughs) Um, What's nice about that is that that anybody who sits behind me is a first-class passenger. They get really nice. Uh And and there was a tremendous egress. I really want to applaud Cessna. The airplane held together beautifully. It broke in exactly the places it was supposed to break, and there were very few surprises. Mm -hmm. Um, There's only seven items on the Cessna 210 ditching list. I did them all and uh, touched down. And it took me about three seconds to realize that I needed to be outside of the airplane because I had a face full of water. Um, When the airplane touched down, the fuselage did what it was supposed to do, and it bent, um, which compressed the windscreen in such a manner that it popped out uh, about a 12-inch hole in the middle of the windscreen. Wow, okay. And that's where the water came from. Ah, okay. So... Only the front seat passengers had, and, and the, the right seat passenger and the, and the pilot had that issue. Um, everybody else, because of the way the airplane sits in the water with the engine kind of down, even though it was fully loaded, um, were pretty much sitting high and dry for, for about a minute, uh-huh. um, which was enough time once I was out to bang on the window and say, uh, hello. And, time uh, to go. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Amy? And, yes. When uh, one one of the tips that they gave us when when we went through uh, pre Cayman departure ditching training there in Key West mm-hmm. was the idea of op- wedging the door open with a flip flop or a sandal or a tennis shoe or something like that, so that you didn't have to worry about the the fuselage distorting and jamming the door shut. Did you do anything like that? No, because I was in a situation at 1,500 feet above the ground in a turn when I lost. You didn't have much time. No. What I did do, though, is I had the doors open. And in the 210, if you open the doors and then let the handle flip back down again. It can't close. It can't close. Cool. Yeah, okay. you, did the, you did the equivalent of this. 
Yeah. And quite inadvertently, I might let you know. So how far, uh, where, where were you in relation to shore or, or some vessel of some sort? Oh, uh, we weren't in the water for five minutes. Uh-huh. Um, again, like I said, apparently I was within 300 yards of a dredging barge because that's who came and picked us up in his little putt putt. Um, he came right on over and he dragged us on and looked at me and said, I can get that out of there for you. <laughs> well, such service, huh? Would, would you like I to use that again sometime? And oh. I said, how, how deep that's was not water? my problem anymore. <laughs> so, <laughs> I have been told the water was 30 feet. I was not there when they brought the airplane up. Um, I had a couple of kids, um, one of whom wasn't mine, and uh, a lot of responsibilities I had to take care of. So I, once I had cleared with the NTSB, I left town and brought everybody back home. Um, and then uh, monitored from afar the um, process of bringing the airplane uh, back. So, so you guys got out of the airplane. What, did you inflate a raft, or how did that work? didn't need to inflate a raft. But let me tell you, uh, there's a couple of tips that I need, need people to understand. Um, when you have a situation where you have a face full of water, you don't have a lot of time to think. And I pretty much had three thoughts. One, don't inhale, that's water. Okay, good. That's Two, a good one, yeah. Okay, was where's the door? Yeah. And reached over, and first my hand went right through, the window was open, right through, and I thought, oh, you could get out that way. And I went, yeah, wait a second. And reached again and caught the door itself and just pushed it, and it just very easily opened, wide open, okay? Because in the 210, the wings are resting up on the water, until they fill up with water. And the fuselage is actually under the water. But you've still got a fair amount of air in there. But everything, it's filling up. It's filling up through the air vents and everything else um, while you're sitting there. Um, so I thought, okay, out. And then I realized I'm still in my seat. Well, why? Seat belt. You have to remember to take off your seat belt. Yeah. Uh-huh. So you need to brief your passengers that once everything stops moving, the door's still in the same place it was before. And whether you can see it or not, it's there. Know where it is and know how to open it. And two, you've got to take off your seatbelt. Every one of my passengers had to stop and think, why am I still in my seat? Mm -hmm. Oh, seatbelt. It slowed every one of us down. Uh You don't want them to take it off until things stop moving. But you do want them to take it off and get out because First they're not going to get it out. Stops they, yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, something else. If it ain't attached to you, it's not coming out with you. Yep. That includes shoes and, you know, but it also includes life vests. And the life vests that I carry in my airplane now are little fanny packs that are very easy to talk people into putting on first. Ah, okay. Because. You, the pilot, will not have time if you have a catastrophic failure like I had. You will not have time to put a life vest on. So if you're over water, you have them wear the PFD. Absolutely. uh, Absolutely. I simply have people wear the PFD. I put the PFD on. You watch. I'll take off from Oshkosh. If I'm going back over the lake, I have no fear of water. I don't don't mind flying a single-engine airplane over water. This is not... You know, oh, I'll never do that again. That's not what happened in this case. The airplane doesn't know the difference. What I change 
is I've always got the life jackets on board wherever I go. And when I know I'm going to be over water or I suspect I'm going to be over significant water, I have the life vest so that I can put it on so that when I'm over water, it's on. That's Mm -hmm. all. And I have the kind of life vests that are comfortable enough, whether you choose to get the little horse collar one, whether you choose to get the really nice ones that they've got that um, are a little bit like a vest, but they're just real thin. Uh, The helicopter pilots use them a lot. They're not not that much more expensive. We're talking $10 a piece more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what People was the general? Were, what was the general demeanor of your passengers? I mean, did they, they were cope? Pretty well? happy. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, you saved their lives. <laughs> yeah. But let's, did any of them any of them freak way. out? I mean, were they were they yeah. pretty calm about the whole thing? Yeah. I, mean, I had I had good swimmers. Um, let's see. My oldest daughter um, was very quick to note to mention that she had both shoes with her. Okay. okay. How? Why? From some small miracle, she'd lost all her shoes at the hotel in Key West, um, and was down to. Her um, the booties that you wear on the beach uh-huh. and in the water, and I had pretty much told her, and I'm talking to a nine-year-old, you need to remember this, that that's it. She's going to have to wear them for the entire vacation in Grand Cayman because I will not buy her another pair of shoes. And <laughs> remembering this, this child, here we are, floating in the water. The airplane disappears in about a minute because it finally filled up with water and did a little Titanic in imitation as it went down. And um, she looks at me she says, Mom, I have my shoes. <laughs> so, I'm sorry, you know, you're very cavalier about this, but so did the aircraft go beneath the surface while you were floating there before the boat arrived? Oh, yes. Yes, oh, man, I'm sorry. That's for a two ten. Okay, that's just wrong, man. That's, yeah. that's just wrong. Two ten with ninety gallons of fuel on it. You know, I mean, it's not going to float for very long. And um, it, there was a little moment of just, uh, and I could see exactly how I'd landed because I had one horizontal uh, stabilizer that stabilizer that was bent up. So I had definitely done a full flare landing, and I have to tell you, without flaps. I never put the flaps down. And I did that because when you put the flaps down, you do two things. You obstruct your egress. Because when you come out that door, the first thing you're going to hit is that big flap Uh in the face. Ah, okay. Okay, or in my case, in the back of the head, because I came out backwards right over the top of the right over the top of the chair, the seat that I was in. Um, The other thing is you run out of elevator. With no power at all on that airplane, you'll run out of elevator. Woo, not a good thing. Yeah. You know, not a good thing so when you, you got to touch down on water. you full flare that you need to touch down on the water. I was a, at a full flare, actually touched down so smoothly that I skipped on the water the first time and then caught that tail on the second touchdown and it went just like a duck. Yeah. Just like a duck and then nose in and kind of bobbed for a minute and sat there and started well, filling up with water. But I you guys we got need a new to understand. <laughs> Everybody got out of that airplane within about 10 seconds. Uh-huh. Okay. I know that it sounds like it took a long time for me to think these things the way I describe it, but I can tell you uh, the, the vision in my head is as clear to me. Oh, sure. That memory yeah. is, is just burned and printed that it was just Boom, 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 out. I looked up, 
And there was my right seat passenger looking at me out of the airplane. She it, she got out exactly just like I did, okay? And we looked in and saw the rest of the people in there and started banging and both ducked under and actually went in. And I yanked on my daughter's shirt. And it was about then that everybody remembered seatbelts and boom, everybody came out. Okay. So now you're floating in the water and the airplane sinks. Did you at that point know there was a boat coming or was there a moment where you're going like... Oh yeah, I could could see the guy coming. You could see it, okay. All right. Oh yeah, I could see the guy coming at us. There's another one coming from... I'm starting to think, gee, I hope they don't run us over. (laughs) And I'm telling the kids to stop picking the cards up off the water, come here, you know. Uh I mean, it's good. I have Florida kids who learn to swim as infants and I was very comfortable, you know, with that and they had life jackets on and they weren't even inflated people we were just kind of like sitting there on the water i'm yeah. going there's the boat it's coming come here don't swim away damn it you know well, you know when i yeah when i first and heard I, and that- I did keep counting one thing i compulsively kept going doing and that's the only reason i know that i was pretty stressed was i kept going one two three four five yeah okay <laughs> got them all all right yeah yeah all got right. them all exactly <laughs> so and did- you're just so elated you don't really care at that right. point about sure. the equipment. So now, and Maybe, so, uh, go ahead, Jeb. Well, kind of a, um, a related, unrelated question or, or extracurricular question here. Um, I know you were doing, for example, uh, as part of the Cayman Caravan, you were doing the ditching briefing, the overwater flight briefing. Yes. And looking back on your experience with this particular uh, episode, was there ah. anything that you did not put into that briefing uh, in the unlikely event you ever have to do this again, oh, yes. what would yes, you do Jeff. differently? And I guess thirdly, to those who have yet to experience such a thing, is there any single recommendation you would make? Yes, here's a couple of them. Things I've done differently. We talked about the life jackets, okay? One other thing is uh, you mentioned, uh, what about that life wrap? Well, I didn't go back for it, but let me tell you why I even had to go back for it. It weighed 35 pounds. It was behind the front seat, and behind the front seat, I had two children, neither of whom was capable of pulling that life raft out with them. I now have a life raft that still is certified rated for the same people I need it to be rated for, but only weighs 15 pounds. And I'm very careful about who sits with the life raft. I make sure sure that they know how it works. I keep the tags on it that says how it works because it's got a label that tells you how to work it just in case you forget everything I told you. And I make sure they know that so they don't freak out, okay? Um, And my children had actually been to the pool and actually had the opportunity to activate a a life raft. So I can't beat myself up for my kids' briefing. They got it. The problem was when it was time to get out, it was time to get out. Mm -hmm. And they did. And I looked at that and thought, you know what? The boat's coming. I'm not going back in that airplane. Because it, you could tell it was about to go down, and sure. I'm thinking, why would I want to be in there, and it's sinking like a stone, right. trying to grab this, this, which isn't really that heavy underwater, understand that, but you're not underwater when you're getting ready to land this thing. So these are things I've changed. I've changed the way I brief my passengers. Um, I um, changed it a little bit. 
I'm, I'm very cognizant on every flight I ever take of oper- teaching them how to operate the seatbelts and talking about that seatbelt briefing. I also never tell them to wait until I tell them to do something because there's always the chance that I might not be conscious to tell them mm-hmm. to get out of the airplane, that they need to know to do this themselves and not to wait for me, wait till it stops moving, but not to wait for me. Yeah, and I, I, make I always. Sure they, that they can open and close the doors. Yeah. I always tell people, you know, it, it, basically if, if we land on something that's not an airport and the airplane is like, you know, broken or, or whatever, I said, don't just get out of the airplane. Get away from the airplane. Get out. Get away. And said, so if you stop to ask a question, you will be talking to yourself because I'm going to be getting out of the airplane. Um, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. I'm going to be over there. Thing, one more thing, which is I really talk to people to think carefully about who they seat next to one of their exits. Mm-hmm. You've yeah. got to have somebody. The airlines don't do this just because. You right. have to have somebody capable of opening and operating the exit and being actual a part of the team that helps make a strong egress. You yeah. don't want to put that person in the back. You want to put that person near the exit mm-hmm. so yeah. that the airplane, uh, so that you can get out. And um, I've had a lot of people talk to me, well, my kid loves to sit in the right seat. And, you know, and I said, well, what kind of airplane are you flying? Well, a Dakota. You might want to think about that. Because you're going to have to go over that kid to get out. Yeah, I I have to go over anybody to get out of my airplane. And it won't phase me in the least. I will go right over them like a steamroller. I'm going to hook, I'm going to unhook their seatbelt on the way by. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, Amy, I had a had a quick question. I've wondered about this in the past uh, from uh, when I first heard about this. But you were at about fifteen hundred feet. You said on your climb yes. out. Yes. Do you have any cognizance of how long it was from when it failed to when you touched down? Less than two minutes. That's what I thought. That's not a long time to prep. There wasn't a lot of prepping to do. One of the things I teach all of my students is to actually. You, you do have time to think about what just happened if you keep flying the airplane. Remember, what did I do first? I kept the airplane in the turn back towards shore and pushed the nose over. Why did I push the nose over? Because I was in a climb. And you you're not going to keep your, yeah, I was flying the airplane. You're not going to keep your, your best glide speed unless you push the nose over to best glide from a climbing situation. Now, you've got to think it through. Where's best glide? But if you're not going for best glide with a catastrophic engine failure, you have have your first problem. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, you're shortchanging yourself a little bit. Yeah, Yeah, your problem is now greater than what caused the engine failure. And it's often occurred to me, you know, of, of... the the only silver lining in this whole thing was that it happened to you, you know, a, a minute or two out of Key West, and not an hour and ten minutes into the flight to Cayman, because we'd have never known what that crankshaft looked like. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's absolutely right. An hour an hour out, I would have been at eight thousand feet and had a whole bunch more time to think about what was going to happen. And you know, you say that, yeah, yeah, you know, but an hour out. Yeah, I would have been over Cuba still. 
and well, I might an hour have, out, but, you would have been getting over that uh, that trench on the south side of Cuba, where the water goes yeah. to what thirteen thousand feet. Water goes to thirteen thousand feet, but I would have been at an altitude that I very likely would have been very close to land again mm. to be able to mm-hmm. to to, to um, put it down. So I might have chosen still to put it in the water because you know, depending on the kind of land you're looking at. Quite frankly, around Key West, there's not a lot of choices. No. If you can't make the runway, then you're probably putting it in the water. Right. You know, I'm not all that surprised that you you very coolly handled the situation and and saved your you know your your passengers and so forth. But did it hit you at some point? You know, you're sitting in the boat with a blanket wrapped around you, and and suddenly, oh my goodness, what what just happened? It doesn't work like that, Jack. Yeah. How does it work? What happened was you keep thinking. Um, I got a little confused. I actually thought I was in Grand Cayman a couple times as we were because you went from that boat to the Coast Guard boat. Now you're going to the Coast Guard dock. You're looking at the you know the big big uh, cruise boats, and I'm almost like you know I'm thinking kind of goofy thoughts. You're you're jumping all over the place. Um, you know, and I'm talking to the insurance guy, and he's reminding me that maybe I want to call the NTSB. And, you know, there were just a lot of different things. Um, they, they ship you off, you know, to the hospital just to check everybody out. And I'm still thinking about these kids need to be in dry clothes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? I, I really had a lot of different things I had to take care of. Passengers, you know, um, one passenger needed two stitches on her knee. Um, that took three and a half hours to get because they wanted to give her an MRI, you know. <laughs> um, <Right. laughs> it, it, there was a lot of complicating factors. Yeah. And so it really took a long time. And, and you never, it never really sunk in. I would say that the only reason I knew that I was having some post-traumatic stress syndrome was I didn't want to go flying a week later. And I had pushed myself and got back in an airplane, and I had done all these things. Now, you guys need to understand that this is 2001 in the summer. And it was not until 9-11 that I started to have a severe reaction that made me think that maybe I had an issue. Mm -hmm. And it was a good six months. And, yeah, quite frankly, I went to see somebody who specialized in first responders and did a couple therapy sessions with him. Um, and that really made a difference in understanding the kind of trauma that first responders have. When everything goes right and you do everything right and there was still an issue, okay, I lost the airplane. Mm-hmm. I lost the airplane. And yes. you need to come around to, yeah, that happened. There was nothing yeah. you could do about it. Sure. You did everything right. And, yeah. There's a chance that could happen again, that the airplane could come right out from under you again, and you're going to have to do the whole darn thing again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well. And and your your primeval fight or f- flight thing has to be overcome, and that took about six months. So, I guess what one of the things I need to need to tell people is, you scare yourself in an airplane. You're probably going to take a little while to get over that. And if you really want to fly, you're going to have to work at it. Because mm-hmm. it's not a, just going to go away. Yeah. A good uh, friend of mine suffered uh, through a, a fairly tragic fatal airplane crash down in South America some years ago. I believe it was uh, early 89. 
and uh, his boss was sitting front right seat in the aircraft that crashed and, and died in the accident. And my friend was sitting behind the co-pilot, I mean, behind the pilot seat, uh, faced backward, and was uh, injured pretty badly. Uh, a long-time active pilot. Uh, he was a, a, a good deal of time uh, getting back in an airplane, starting to fly again, uh, starting to use an airplane again. Uh, now he flies regularly for his job, and, and, and uh, he's very comfortable. But, but one of the things that helped him down the road was he uh, became active in a group for air crash survivors uh, and helped impart some of what he went through to other people. And in, in, in your story, Amy, I hear a little bit of you doing that on a, on, on a regular basis, just in how you deal with passengers and how, how you teach students. Absolutely, yes. And uh, again, I do do a safety seminar on um, briefing your passengers because I think that um, most of us fly with the most important people in our lives all the time. Mm -hmm. And what we're most afraid of is hurting them. And the best thing we can do is bring them in, make them part of the team that's going to have a successful um, emergency encounter. And I think that's what I did with my kids, and I think it made a big difference. And, uh, yeah, I do swear by it. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, well, that, ladies and gentlemen, is the off-field landing of the week, I'll tell you. <laughs> Good job, I, Amy. Good job. I have, one, I have one question, though, Amy. Yes. And, and feel free not to answer this question as you, as you choose. What was your drink of choice once you got to dry land that had the option? <laughs> and how many of them did you have? I can't tell you because I actually waited until my husband showed up because, as you remember, I was still in the same – actually, no, uh, the, the, the uh, kind people at the uh, Key West FBO loaned me uh-huh. a dry T-shirt. But other than that, I was pretty much in the clothes on my back and hiding out from news reporters who I did not want to talk to that day. Um, one poor soul who actually was talking to me – and said, I'd like to interview that guy who was in, the, who was the pilot of that airplane. To <laughs> it on the and I said, yeah, I bet you would. And we had a whole conversation for about five minutes about how badly he wanted to interview that guy. And I smiled and walked away. That was one of the most enjoyable things I did. That <laughs> I love it. I well, thank you, Amy, for sharing that with us. That's uh, that's very instructional and and yeah. uh, and very okay. impressive. Congratulations. Good job. Good You're job. Welcome. And. and- yeah, I, I know Amy's been reluctant to talk about this, and uh, very, very much appreciate her doing so here. Yeah, really. Well, we're reaching the end of our allotted time here. So what do you guys got? Anything going on out in the world? Oh, I just finished the conference program for Women in Aviation's conference in San Diego. So if when, you're down that way, uh, when's March that happening? 13th through 15th of March. Give us some examples of some of the conferences, that are gonna, some of the sessions that are going to be there. Ooh, 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 uh, conference sessions. All right, hang on a second. Um, we will have aeromedical advisors talking about uh, how to keep your medical and answering your questions, actually. You can walk right up to uh, them, and, and they'll, they'll be taking questions. Uh, we also have experts in um, shop health for home builders. 
Um, okay, yeah. So how to keep from poisoning yourself, which is something that's actually a problem for A&P mechanics and home builders. Uh, we're going to have airline pilot panels and air traffic controller uh, panels for careers in either of those fields. As well, um, we'll have dress for success in the aviation industry because wow. it is a women's conference. Don't fool yourself. Uh-huh. Um, we've got uh, finances, how to buy your first airplane. We've got how to how to own a hang home it just runs the gamut seriously um, the uh, corporate airline uh, corporate um, pilot panels and um, we have a recurrent training for maintenance professionals as well as uh, NAFI um, FERC so, so do people need to register in advance to attend they do at wai.org they can register in advance. You can register at the door. So the Town and Country Hotel, um, right next to Old Town, San Diego. Cool. Other shout-outs? Anybody? I was just going to sh- uh, uh, pay my respects to uh, Clark Walker and Clark uh, Walker Aviation here in Tifton. Uh, um, my many thanks for all of their good service, and especially for letting me use their Wi-Fi this afternoon and, and, and use their conference room. I very much appreciate it. Dave, what's your shout-out? Oh, this is to uh, my old buddy uh, uh, Phil Lockwood at Lockwood Aircraft. Uh, first weekend in March, uh, they're conducting what they call their first exotic destination flyout with uh, about 14 owners and pilots of the uh, uh, twin-engine air cam headed over to Abaco Key. And I'm going to do some island hopping around over there over the weekend, uh, headed over on the 7th, back on the 9th. I imagine anybody that flies an air cam knows about this. It's been contacted about the opportunity. Uh, I bring it up for those folks that uh, uh, sometimes uh, ask me questions about, you know, what what are the kind of things you can do other than go places in an airplane? And it's like, well, you can go places in an airplane, but they can be some pretty interesting places with some pretty interesting people. And uh, knowing Phil and, and, and a couple of air cam owners and, and that kind of adventure flying uh, is of great appeal to me. I think it would be to a lot more pilots and people if they knew that the opportunities were there. So, uh, you know, congrats, good luck, hope you get good weather for the whole weekend. And uh, for the rest of us, you know, it's something to think about, grabbing a passport for everybody and uh, uh, finding a little destination off the beaten path to go to, whether it's, uh, you know, a a getaway uh, hangar hotel in Texas or flying out to one of the, the, the Keys or Key West or the Bahamas or the Cayman Caravan or Mexico or someplace. Getting out and do something, that's thats one of the great yeah. appeals of this thing. Yeah, there's a, uh, a group trip to the Bahamas. I think it's in late March, early April. I'm, I'm seriously considering aiming up for that. That would there be you fun. Go. There you go. Well, thank you to Amy Lobota for joining us, literally joining us on 20 minutes' notice. We pulled this thing together uh, at the last last moment. This yeah, morning. I'm going to remember that. <laughs> so we owe you one for that. We appreciate it. It's we always do a indeed. Thank you, Amy. And, uh, and appreciate and, it. And it's always fun yeah. to have you in the hangar. You can learn more about Amy and her work at uh, her magazine's website, which is wai.org/magazine. That's Whiskey Alpha India/magazine. Learn more about Jeb and his work at jebburnside.com, also aviationsafetymagazine.com. And you can learn more about Dave Higdon and all his work. Uh, just get uh, just websites, Google. 
just Google just your Google. name. Yeah, and, right. Now. And uh, ignore the tennis guy. You can learn more about uh, a lot of the stuff that Dave has been doing. Eventually, his website, DaveHignan.com, will come back online. You can check that out. And myself at uh, JackHodgson.com and also TechPopuli.net. So thank you, everyone, for joining us in the virtual hangar this afternoon. And we'll talk to you all again next time. <laughs>